and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's ser hired servants have bread enough and spared? And I perish with, perish with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Good morning. <laughs> they knew I was coming, and uh, <laughs> I have that effect on people. I do. It is good to see you this morning. We're very thankful for your presence always. It is a delight to be together and to assemble and to fellowship one with another and to give God the praise and the glory that he is certainly worthy of. If you are doing our reading, how's it going? How's that going? Going well? A lot of you are doing it. Um, you've progressed very quickly then. Uh, as you start to count the, the books in the Bible and the chapters, there are 28 in Matthew, there's 16 in Mark, and 24 in Luke. That's a total of 68. And if you started January 1st, that would make you at 72 right now, which would be John 4. That's an amazing amount of reading if you started. If you didn't start on January 1st and you started January 2nd, which would be totally fair because I told you on the 1st, so that would be totally fair, you'd be right now at 64. So you'd be kind of uh, still maybe there at the end of Luke. But I hope it's going well, and uh, we are excited about that. It kind of got me to thinking about a new series of thoughts, and so we'll take a, a, maybe the next several weeks, three or four or five weeks, to talk about change. And uh, the title ultimately would be Some Things You Should Know About Change, and this is number one of that series of thoughts. The new year, I said last week, lends itself to hope and optimism, and I hope you're still there because I'm still there, and hopefully we'll be there for a very long time this year. Hope and optimism because we have the ability to change. There's hope in that. Therein there is the power of change. That provides the optimism. And then ultimately the completion of change brings blessings. Each one of these sermons will have but one point and then several evidences or things to support that one point. And so the first point in this series of thoughts with regards to change is this. Change is possible. I want you to believe that with all your heart because it will move us then to do and make the changes that are necessary. To support that or the evidences of that, we'll note four things this morning. We'll begin in the book of Genesis with point number one, the evidence, the first one. Change is possible because of our nature. The very way God made us allows us to change. Genesis 1, 26, 27, the Bible says that God made man in his own image. In the image of God created he man, male and female created he them. God made humanity, male and female, in his image. Our very nature allows us to change. With regards to nature, there are four distinct natures revealed to us in Scripture. 
In descending order, those natures are the divine nature. This is the nature that God possesses. God is eternal. God is all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect in every way, without any darkness, 1 John 1, 5. That nature is divine. That nature is sometimes referred to as the Godhead. You might read that in Romans 1, 20, Acts 17, 29, or Colossians 2 and verse number 9, where Paul says of Jesus, coincidentally, in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead or the divine nature bodily. We have God with us in the person of Jesus. After the divine nature and with the distance, please don't allow the close connection to make you believe that they're close in nature. I only mean that in descending order, there is then angelic nature. That nature is described as being spirit. Hebrews 1, 13 and 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth and they did serve God on behalf of humanity or those who would obtain salvation? With regards to angelic nature, Peter says that they are greater in power and might than men. Again, you just read through the Bible and you see what angels are capable of, and it becomes very clear they are greater and more powerful than we are. They, however, are spirit beings, eternally so once they're made, they're made spiritually. After angelic nature, there's human nature. I'll come back to human nature, but following human nature is animal nature. Now, God is spirit, John 4, 23, 24. Angels are spirit, Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. Animals are flesh. They are just that. Only humans share flesh and spirit. We are alone in that distinction. There is nothing else like mankind. We have things in common with the animals, but we're not animals. One of the things that we have in common with them is we both made from the dust of the ground, Genesis 2-7 and Genesis 2-19. Because of that, we will die. This flesh will be corrupted. It will inevitably go back to the dust, Genesis 3 and verse 19. And so when animals die, they go back to the dust. When humans die, our flesh also goes back to the dust. But unlike and distinct from animals, though we share that in common, we also share the divine nature. And so we share something in common with animals. We also share something in common with God. It is that divine nature that makes us immortal. It is that shared in God's image that distinguishes us from them. Jesus said, fear not them which are able to destroy the body but cannot destroy the soul. That soul that we possess, that spirit is eternal in its nature. It cannot, will not be destroyed. As a result of that, we will be resurrected and we will live forever. Animals do not have this. Any conclusion then or any belief that would suggest that humans are animals must be rejected. Please don't accept anything or anybody that tells you you're an animal, that your cousins are the cows and the giraffes. No, sir, no, ma'am, you are not an animal. Because of our nature, we can think, we can consider, we can decide courses of actions. And if we get down the road a ways having thought and considered and decided, we can then reflect, regret, reconsider. 
As a result of that, we can change. Change is possible because of our very nature. The way God made us allows us to change. There in the pig's pen in Luke 16 or Luke 15, where the young man is in the pig's pen, what we had read was this young man saying, I perish with hunger. And then he says, I will arise and go to my father. You know, he's the only one in the pen who can say that. Animals can be trained, tamed, and domesticated, James 3 and verse number 7, but animals can't change. A zebra can't change its stripes. A leopard can't change its spots. And sometimes people get confused because you can train them. People think they've changed. And so you can train an elephant to stand on, a, on, on its legs under a tent where humans are in close proximity. And by your training of that elephant, it looks like, wow, they've really controlled it. But the elephant can't go knock on the manager's door and say, I'd like to discuss and renegotiate our terms of working conditions. Sometimes people's ability to domesticate animals has proven fatal because they make the mistake of believing that a trained animal is a changed animal, and it's not. The boy isn't talking to the pigs in the pen. The pigs don't want to leave. The pigs are fine with the slop. It's the young man that comes to himself and says, I will get up and I will go home. Number one, Change is possible because of our nature. Number two, change is possible because change is a choice. In Jeremiah chapter 6, in verse number 16, the prophet from God appeals to Israel. We might say he beseeches them, he implores them, he begs them, stand in the way and see. Ask for the good path. Wherein is the old ways? Walk in them. And they say, we will not. Change is a choice, and sometimes people make bad choices. Satan, the Bible says of him, he did not abide in the truth, John 8 and verse 44. Pharaoh was given a choice in Exodus chapter 5 and verse number 2, 1 and 2, let my people go. Pharaoh said, I will not let them go. Jesus invited the Jews, come unto me, and they refused, John 5, 39 and verse number 40. And Jesus said to them, you will not come to me that you might have life. There are plenty of examples in the Bible of people making bad choices, but there are almost as many, if not more, of people making good choices. Noah, the Bible says in Genesis 6, thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Exodus 12 and verse number 13, God told Israel, put out the blood, and sure enough, they put the blood exactly where God demanded, and when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Hebrews 11 and verse number 30, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. Joshua and Israel did it just the way God demanded Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 19, Moses said to Israel, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life and live. 
Last week, we talked about personal responsibility. That was one of the points. In fact, it was point number one, personal responsibility. Take that and put it with this thought. Change is possible. It's possible because of personal responsibility. Joshua 24, verses 15 and 14 and 15, Joshua said to Israel, choose ye this day. That choice is a personal choice, and you'll be held responsible for that choice. The young man in the pig's pen got himself there. If you read that parable in Luke chapter 15, verse number 11 and verse number 12, the Bible says with regards to that father, a father had two sons. The younger of them came to his father and said, give me my inheritance, that which falls to me. The Bible says the father divided up the inheritance and gave it to them, gave it to his sons. The next verse says, and after many days, the young man gathered his things and left the father's house, went to a far country and wasted his substance with riotous living. Let me ask you this. How did that young man get to the pig's pen? Choice after choice after choice after choice. He made the decision to ask for the father's inheritance. He made the decision to pack up his things. He made the decision to leave the father's house. He made the decision to waste his substance. Now he finds himself in a pig's pen contemplating eating with the pigs. If it's not the ability to choose and to change, how can he get out? The man that made the choices to get in is the same man that could make the choices to get out. Personal responsibility is how God will decide personal accountability. It's what he uses. It's the very reality that because you're responsible, he'll hold you accountable. That's how it works. It's the reason he can judge us so righteously. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 10, the Bible says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You're going to be held accountable. Everybody will. If you could imagine a line, if you will, just for visual sake, imagine a line that just didn't have an end. Eight billion people in the line. If it were this way, I don't know that it is, but if it were, eight billion people, one after the other, has to stand before God. You're in the line. There's no escaping it. There's no minute. There's no way around it. You will be there. Everybody will be held accountable. Now, when you get there, that accountability, I'm here. The rest of the verse says that he may give an account for the things which he has done in his own body. It's precisely because you're personally responsible that God can hold you accountable. You have to be able to change. The power is absolutely within you because change is a choice. You made one decision, you can make another one. That young man came to himself and left the pig's pen. Number three, change is possible because God demands change. Scripture calls this repentance. We'll look at this in another sermon at the end here when we talk about how to change. But it is absolutely essential because God absolutely demands it. Thayer says with regards to repentance, it is to change one's mind, 
to change one's mind for the better, he adds, with the abhorrence of one's past sins, to heartily amend one's ways, to think differently afterwards, to reconsider. What's clear from Scripture is God demands this of everyone who will have a relationship with him. It's not optional. We don't have a choice or a say in the matter. If we'll have a relationship with God, we must repent. Luke 13, 3, Jesus says, I tell you nay or no, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Contextually, if you read the first five verses of Luke 13, he's talking to Jews who've told him about people who've suffered in two different ways. Some had their blood mingled with sacrifices. Others, 18, a tower fell on them. When they say this to Jesus, he responds the same way twice, verse 3 and verse 5. To the first, he says, do you think that they were sinners above everybody else? I tell you, no, and except ye repent, you'll also likewise perish. They repeat, what about these people? He says, I tell you, no. Do you think they were sinners above everybody else? I tell you, no, and except ye repent, you shall all likewise perish. Repentance is as essential as every other aspect of our conversion and salvation, though unfortunately it doesn't seem to get the same amount of discussion. We talk at length about faith, and you absolutely believe it. You need it. You can't be saved can't have a relationship without faith. You absolutely must believe. John 8, 24, Jesus said, if you believe not that I am, you'll die in your sins. You have to confess. Jesus said, if you don't confess me before me, and I won't confess you. Paul says, we confess with our mouths, and it leads us unto salvation. We have to be immersed in water. We have to be baptized for the remission of sins. In fact, Peter said, repent and be baptized. Jesus said, go into all the world. He that believeth and is baptized. Baptism is absolutely essential, but friends, listen. Repentance is absolutely essential. We have to change our minds about the course of action we're on. If it's the wrong thing, we have to change because God demands it. Acts 17 and verse number 30, Paul speaking there on Mars Hill, he said to those individuals, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere. Let me just pause there long enough for you and I to appreciate all men everywhere. Sometimes you're reading the Bible and you just pass right over things. You do appreciate that means everybody. Nobody's excluded. Nobody's left out. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, why does he demand that? Verse 31 says, because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, and he's given, he's given evidence he raised him from the dead. God is going to judge by Jesus Christ. Everybody has to repent. There is no way around that. Scripture provides a picture of what repentance looks like. If you have your Bibles, look there in Matthew chapter 21. Begin reading with me at verse 28, and notice this picture of repentance. Sometimes people ask me, well, what does that look like? Well, the Bible doesn't just tell us to do stuff. It often provides an illustration, an example, and a very real picture of how to do the very thing God is demanding of us. 
This is no exception. Verse 28 says, but what do you think? A father had two sons. Man had two sons. He came to the first son and he said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he, you might have the word repented here. You might have the word he regretted it. But it's not just that he regretted it. Know what follows. He regretted it, and afterward, he went. He changed his mind, and then he changed his ways. He went and did what the father said. The very next son, he came to the second son, he said the same thing. Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he said, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, that the tax collectors, this is actually the context, the context is to these Jews, these Pharisees, these leaders of the day, the religious people who have heard John, they rejected him. They're hearing Jesus, they reject him. They look the part, they look righteous, they look holy, but they refuse to repent. To them, Jesus says, truly I say to you, that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Why, verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him and you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe. There are people who are sinners. They hear the truth. They turn, give up their sin, and they follow after God. There are people who appear to be righteous. They say, I will, but they won't. These people who repent change their minds, regret their past, and then change their lives. That's the biblical illustration and model of repentance. Change is possible because human nature provides it. The very way God made us allows us to change. Change is a choice. That's what makes it possible. You've made one, two, three, four bad decisions. You can turn around and come back. And change is demanded by God, and so we have to change. If there are things that are wrong in our lives, we have to give those things up, heartily amend our ways, regret them, turn from them, and change and walk after God. And then finally and fourthly, change is possible because others have changed. The Bible is full of examples of people who have changed their lives and are now, and once they change, live faithfully for God. You could begin, at least it seems like a very good place, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, where an audience of people assembled and heard the gospel preached, the gospel centering around Jesus the Christ. In fact, if you read Acts chapter 2, focus on the phrase, this Jesus this Jesus. There were, of course, other people named Jesus in the New Testament time, but they keep referencing this Jesus. Now, why do they keep doing that? Because their point to this audience is that one that you crucified, not some other one, that one. And once they have their minds and heart focused on that one, they then say, that one is the Christ. That's the Messiah. This Jesus 
is the Christ, the very thing you rejected, the very thing you refused to believe. All through his ministry, all of the evidences, all of the things that he did, the miracles, the wisdom, the parables, all of it, that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. In fact, they quote the Old Testament frequently to establish that this Jesus God has raised from the dead and he is exalted at the right hand of God. And it's when they hear that, they are pricked in their heart and they change their attitudes and beliefs about Jesus. Those individuals are then baptized, the very people who murdered Jesus. Please don't let somebody tell you you can't change. The murderers of Jesus changed. They went from, he's mad. They went from, he's a liar. They went from, he's blaspheming, to he's the Christ, the son of the living God. They changed. They're not the only ones, though. People change their religion. They are idolatrous people. If you read Acts 18 and 19, you'll read about Diana, and you'll read about how people praised and worshiped Diana, and you'll read about how those craftsmen gave their hearts and lives to them and refused to. But in Acts 19, 13 to 20, after seeing the miracles from the apostles, many of them brought their books of magic, brought their curious arts and their beliefs, and they burned them in the fire, obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. They gave up idolatry. They changed their religion. In the book of Jonah, an entire nation changed. Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. The Assyrians changed. The king down to the beggar, everybody in between, put on sackcloth and ashes, and maybe, just maybe, the God of heaven will relent. And he did. They changed. An entire nation changed. People changed their internal destinies. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul says that you turned from dumb idols to serve the living God. They changed. It's unfortunate that people are told, first of all, that they are animals. Though that's terribly unfortunate, wholly untrue. You shouldn't believe that. But if you're an animal by nature, then you're followed and you're also told, well, now you're born a particular way and you're incapable of changing it. That flies right in the face of Scripture and the God of heaven and every evidence in the world. No, a zebra can't change its stripes, but we can change our actions. People change their morality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you know, we, sometimes maybe we just don't fully appreciate that these were just people, just like everybody else. The apostle Paul went into the city of Corinth, and there was, there was sin in Corinth. The people were committing lies and living lies and actions of sin. And yet what Paul did was he preached the gospel, Acts 18, 1 to 8. He went into that city and he preached the gospel. And the Bible says many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. He writes a letter to those brethren in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he remembers, reflects upon what they were and where they came from. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 9. 
He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he says this, through inspiration, be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But listen to what he says, such were some of you. That means that some of the Corinthians were homosexuals. That's what that means. That means that some of the Corinthians were swindlers. That's what that means. That means when Paul came into the city of Corinth, some of them were living as drunkards. That's what that means. That some of them were revilers. Some of them were adulterers. That's what that means. Paul says, when I came there, I brought you Jesus Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. And when I preached to you Jesus, many of you changed. You heard the gospel, you believed it, and you were baptized. And that which you once were is not what you are now. You change. In fact, in the second epistle to this group of individuals, he says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Either people don't know or they know and they refuse to accept the truth. Morality can be changed. Our actions can be changed. Morality is not the same as ethnicity. Ethnicity cannot be changed. If we are sinning, then our moral choices that we're making must change. Every moral action we take is a choice that we've made. If you read the list of sins in Scripture, and if you attempt to pull out only one, and you say, well, this one can't be changed, friends, you'd have to do that with the whole list. You'd have to go through and read Romans 1 and say none of that can be changed. And if you're a parent, I know you want one of those at least changed because in Romans 1, there's disobedience to parents. I'm sure you'd like that change, but imagine if your child said, you know what, I was born disobedient, and as it turns out, I can't change it. All of these actions are changeable. They have to be. Nobody's born a sinner. These actions are sinful, and therefore we must change them. Coincidentally, the word fornication is the broader word that encompasses all sexual sins. So sometimes people say, well, there's homosexuality and there's heterosexuality, and, and if you got born this way, then you can change it. Listen. A man having sexual relation with a man is sinning. A man having sexual relation with a woman, not his wife, is sinning. Neither one of them was born that way. You know what I've never heard is anybody argue for this. Can you imagine a husband in a counseling session? He and his wife come in and sit down. Preacher sits across the desk with a counselor. What's the problem? The wife says, my husband's being unfaithful to me. He's committing adultery. He has had multiple women, and he refuses to stop. Can you imagine as the counselor, the preacher, sits, turns, and focuses on the husband, and he says, is this true? Yes. 
Why are you doing that? Because I was born this way. Is there anybody willing to accept that? Is there any wife willing to accept that? Is there any husband willing to try that? <laughs> All sexual sin that's not, that's outside of what God has designed is sinful and it must be changed. And Paul said, the Corinthian brethren did it. And the truth is, everybody can. Morality is objective. If it's right and wrong morally, then it's right and wrong all the time for everybody. God has not made you in such a way that he condemns what you do, but fixes it so you can't change it. God hasn't done that to you, friends. And one of the most hurtful things is for people to make decisions and get themselves into things and then be told by other people, and now you can't get out of that thing. The young man who got himself into the pig's pen is the same young man that got himself out of the pig's pen. And friends, if you and I have gotten ourselves into something that's sinful and harmful to us and contrary to God, please don't let anybody tell you you can't change it. Don't let anybody tell you you can't get out of it. Don't let anybody tell you, you can't get over it, you can't get past it, there's nothing you can do, you have to stay here and wallow in the pig's pen. It's just not true. Weren't you rejoicing when that young man got up and went home? Didn't you celebrate with the father when the young man was embraced? Weren't you thrilled when the father said, get him a ring and a robe and a shoes? My son was dead and is alive again. Do you know how many parents around this world and in the Lord's body would have the same level of joy and cheer if their children would come back home? There's joy in heaven over one sinner that repents more than 99 just persons that need no repentance. You can change. You can change because of your nature. God made you in his image. You can change because of your choices. If you've made one bad decision, you can make one good decision and change that one. You can change because God demands it. He absolutely requires change. And you can change because other people have accomplished it. In fact, that's one of the things that after somebody changes, they usually say. They get a YouTube channel. <laughs> You've probably seen them. And they say, well, I was broke and I had no money and then I did this and now look. And then I, I, I lost 100 pounds and I was this and I was that. Then I Now look. And then before they're done, they say, and if I can do it, Amen and amen. Other people have already shown the ability to change. And maybe Saul of Tarsus stands out as an example. 
of going from a persecutor and murderer to the persecuted and willing to give his life for the Lord's cause. Change is possible. Please reject anybody who tells you that you can't, even if that person is smiling at you in the mirror. Even if the voice comes from inside of your own head, please reject it and believe God. Change is possible. Now, a Christian, what better way to change than this morning becoming a child of God? No greater change you could make than to give your life to Jesus. Would you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, John 8, 24? Would you change your heart and your mind, the Bible calls it repentance, and then confess the name of Jesus? Would you be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins and let God, through Jesus, wash away every sin, make you a new creation? If you haven't done that, we beg you to do that this morning. Make that change. It's the greatest one you'll ever make. But if you are God's child, maybe you've been going the wrong way for a while. Maybe you've gotten yourself into the proverbial pig's pen. Friends, I tell you this. Sometimes people who claim to love you will do you a great disservice by telling you things that simply are not true. They might tell you you can't get back. That's not true. They might tell you those people over there at that church, they're so righteous and holy, boy, they don't want you back. That's not true. They might tell you, boy, if they ever found out what you did, you have any idea? That's not true. Number one, it's not our business. It's not our business. What it is our business to do is to, if you come back and give your life to God, is to embrace you and to love you and to welcome you, and we will. If you're willing to change, God is willing to have you back. Please don't let anybody keep you in the pig's pen. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.